Well, back in June of 1990, uh, British Airways Flight 5390 was 27 minutes uh, into their flight from England to Spain when suddenly two of the cockpit windows shattered. The cabin was immediately depressurized, the cockpit door was ripped off of its hinges, and Captain Tim Lancaster, who was at the controls at the time, was instantly pulled out of his seatbelt and he was sucked out the front window of the airplane. Now somehow, flight attendant Nigel Ogden was able to wrap his arms around the captain's legs and keep him from flying completely out of the plane and probably being sucked into the jet engines. Now, this is not a real photograph from the actual event. Later on, National Geographic recreated the event for a film, but that kind of gives you an idea of what was happening. And with the help of two other flight attendants, they actually held on to the captain's legs in the front of the plane there while the plane continued to fly. The wind resistance was so strong they could not pull him back into the cockpit. So for 20 grueling minutes, he was plastered to the front of the plane as the co-pilot was able to make an emergency landing. The captain not only survived that event, but five months later he was actually back in the cockpit flying again. Uh, that's an actual picture of him. The next picture, let's go on, uh, is him in the hospital surrounded by the crew that saved his life. I want you to try to imagine what an experience would be like like that. I mean, fighting with all of your might, knowing that you literally hold in your hands another man's life. And truthfully, had they let go, it probably would have taken the life of everybody on board the plane because had the engine uh, pulled him in, it would have crashed the plane. How do you hold on when it seems like everything is out of control? I mean, seriously, how do you keep holding on when you're exhausted, you're beat up, in their case, freezing to death, and you're terrified all at the same time? Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Philadelphia, and he told them to hold on. Things were hard they were going through some really tough times, and he did not want them to give up hope. In fact, he reminded them of some key promises that we find in Scripture. He reminded them of all we have to look forward to, and he challenged them to keep doing what they were doing and to stay faithful. If you've been with us these last several weeks, you know that we're in a series right now on seven churches and seven letters that were written to these churches in the book of Revelation. The, the, the churches are found in seven ancient cities in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey today. And the letters are actually from Jesus himself. He dictated the letters to the Apostle John who wrote them down and then they were delivered. Some of the churches were faithful, some of them not so faithful, some a mixture of both. But we can learn important lessons, I think, from each one. The series is called Hashtag Up to Us. And we have said each week, if our church is going to be strong, if our church is going to make a difference in this community and have impact around the world, it's what? It's up to us, right? Jesus has delegated the responsibility to us, his church. And the hashtag there reminds us that we are all in this together, that we are part of the same grouping, the same category, making a difference. And remember, we're all going to try to wear our shirts next week. If you did not get an up-to-us shirt, we've got a few left. We'll try to get you one. 
But, but what were the challenges? We, we were challenged to wise up. The problem in Ephesus was legalism. They needed to wise up and get back on board with what they were called to do. There's toughen up. Smyrna was dealing with persecution. Grow up. Pergamum's problem was liberalism. Shape up. The problem in Thyatira was idolatry. And then wake up. We talked about last week that Sardis had a problem with complacency. And as we saw with the church in Smyrna several weeks ago, Jesus really did not have anything negative to say here about the church in Philadelphia. Rather, he wanted them to hold on. And as we dive in, I believe the challenge for them was to look up. That that was going to give them the power. The reminder of God was going to give them the power to hold on. They needed to take the focus off of their present troubles. And they needed to remember all that they had to look forward to. As we saw in the video, Philadelphia was an important city because it was part of a trade route that went from Rome, Italy to the Far East. And the Roman emperors invested a lot of money and a lot of resources there in this city to make it strong because of its strategic location. Now, the name Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, and probably similar to the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, this Philadelphia in Asia Minor, while it has a very nice, friendly name, is probably not always a terribly friendly city, not always kind and compassionate. It certainly wasn't in the first century. The, the opposition, and there was tremendous opposition to this small church that was planted there, it, it wasn't just from the pagans who followed other religions, it was from a group of so-called Jews who were violently opposed to Christianity. And we'll talk more about them in just a second. But I want to show you how this letter begins in Revelation 3-7. Jesus identifies himself as he does each, in each letter as the sender of the letter. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now the Old Testament prophets regularly referred to God as the Holy One. God described himself as the Holy One. When Jesus took this term for himself, he's not just describing his flawless character, but he's actually identifying himself as God. I think this phrase he holds the key of David, is really interesting. It goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. In that time in Israel's history, the king of Judah had a palace administrator named Shebna who was wicked. So God stepped in, God threw Shebna out, and he replaced him. And this is what God said to Shebna in Isaiah 22, 20. He says, in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him, talking to Sheba, Shebna, I will clothe him with your robe, fasten your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him, God says. He will be like a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now listen to verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. When What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Exactly the words that Jesus says in Revelation 3. Eliakim in the Old Testament was going to receive the key to the house of David. Now this wasn't like a key that would unlock a lock. This wasn't like a key you keep under the mat in front of your house uh, so people can let themselves in. No, this key, it says it was going to be put on his shoulders. Obviously not a, a key you carry in your pocket. This key represented authority. 
that Eliakim would have the power to open and close the door to the house of David. He would decide who was welcome and who was not, who could come in and who had to stay out. And then in Revelation, Jesus declares his own power to decide who comes into this house of David. Essentially, who would be welcome into the kingdom of God. Friends, the reality here that I believe John is telling us, Jesus is telling us, is that Jesus has the final word. When we surrender to him, we are cleared to come in. And yet there was a time when Jesus spoke when he was here on earth. He said, there are going to be those who claim to belong to him, but they don't. Those who say they're part of God's kingdom, but they aren't. Jesus has the final word, and he determines each person's final destiny. Now, I'm not telling you that to frighten you. I don't want you to be worried about your your salvation or to question whether or not you're saved. Jesus made promises to us, and his promises are always true. But let's be honest. There are people who claim to be followers of Jesus who aren't. There are people who say they belong to him and they're part of his kingdom, but they're not. And I believe those people know who they are. They know they're not really a part of God's family. Jesus says he opens the door to some, but he closes it to others. It's based on our surrender to him, to those who surrender to his will and to his ways. Notice he says to the the church here in Philadelphia, Revelation 3.8, I know your deeds. I know all about you, he says. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The the door was open for Philadelphia because they had kept the word of God and because they have refused to deny the name of Christ, despite the opposition, despite the persecution. Even despite their own lack of strength, the door was open for them. And yet the door was was closed to those who stood opposed to God and to his people. Look at verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. See, to those who serve the enemy, those who belong to what he calls the synagogue of Satan, the door will be closed to them. And this is the second time that Jesus, in these seven letters, talks about the synagogue of Satan, this group of unbelieving Jews who were persecuting Christians. They were guilty of slandering the the church in Smyrna and now also the church in Philadelphia. And and I'm not suggesting that they actually worshipped Satan in their church services, but rather they were doing the work of Satan by turning against the the church of Jesus Christ and turning the city against those Christians. You know, Satan has been in the news quite a bit this week, if you've been paying attention, since the Grammy Awards last Sunday night. Sam Smith and Kim Petra's song, Unholy, was the most recent and one of the more blatant examples of how society celebrates the devil today. I did not watch the Grammys, I've not seen this video, but I read the lyrics to their song. It's all about adultery and unfaithfulness. I read a number of responses to their performance. Sam Smith was dressed as Satan, Kim Petra was presumably a demon in a cage, red lights were flashing, fire was exploding. This depiction of hell seemed to glorify all things satanic. And as you can imagine, many Christians were appalled by this performance last week on national television. 
and, and just kind of see it as one more example of society's downward spiral. But on the other hand, there are many people in the music industry as well as journalists and just regular folks on social media who say, Christians are just being ridiculous. This is just art. The whole point of art is to push the envelope and it's all about the shock value. Any concern about normalizing demons, not to mention a song that celebrates adultery, the concern is uncalled for. They say it is just art. Now, now we've talked before about how overt, I think, in many ways, Satan is in developing countries and how covert he often is in our culture today. It's not that he's hidden in our culture. Rather, it's that people treat any idea of the devil as a joke. He's a cartoon character. He's a Halloween costume. He's a musical artist on stage. I mean, if Satan isn't real, then what's, what's the harm in dressing up like him or singing about him or pretending to be him in costume on stage? It's just art. It's just entertainment. But what does Jesus say about those who choose the side of Satan? I think we learn from this text. This is, these are those who have not kept God's word who have denied his name. He says the door will be shut to them. They will one day be driven to their knees, forced to admit that Jesus loves those who are on his side. And friends, Jesus has the final word. He decides to whom the door is open and to whom the door is closed. It's not Sam Smith or Kim Petra. It's not Madonna or Trevor Noah. It's not the CBS spokesperson who last Sunday night tweeted right before the unholy performance, we're ready to worship. That's what was tweeted last Sunday night right before this depiction of Satan in hell. Listen, Jesus has the final word. And what he says to the church in Philadelphia, it has special significance, I believe, for the church today here. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The way is wide open for those who surrender to Christ. In fact, he goes on to say that to those who endure, to those who hold on, they will be spared, he says, from something and they will be spared for something. Let me show you. First of all, those who endure will be spared from, verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. He says to those who endure... You will be kept from the hour of trial. Now, there's a lot of disagreement over what this verse means. Some people see it in a figurative sense that God is sparing and will continue to spare those who are faithful. Sure, persecution is real. Millions have suffered for their faith. But that Jesus will always preserve a remnant of his followers no matter how bad the persecution might get. They kind of treat it in more of a figurative way. Other people see in this verse a reference to the rapture. That someday in the future, maybe sooner, maybe later, Jesus is going to rescue his followers. He's going to whisk them away in the blink of an eye. They'll be rescued out of the world before an intense time of tribulation begins. What Jesus calls here the hour of trial. Now, once again, like we've said other times during this series, I can't tell you exactly what Jesus means here. 
I do think it's clear that some kind of intense suffering is coming in the future. Followers of Jesus will somehow be spared, whether that's a rapture to spare us from seven years of tribulation, I can't say for sure. But friends, look at it this way. If we know, based on Scripture, that trial, a time of trial is coming in the future, and we know that somehow those who have obeyed God and His Word those who have stayed faithful to his name, those who have endured patiently, they will get to avoid that time of trial. Which side do you want to be on when the time of trial comes? I mean, we get to choose which side we want to be on. We can laugh with the world, and we can treat the whole idea of the enemy as a joke, and we can ultimately suffer the consequences, or we can look up We can remember that we serve a faithful God who always keeps his promises, and we can be ready when that time of deliverance comes. But until then, we have to endure. We watched at the beginning of the service a clip uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We had Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion, and he's running. You know, he's training for his big fight against Apollo Creed, and he's running up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And, and you know, Rocky has made a lot of movies. I don't know what we got up to. Rocky felt like 17 or something. I, I don't know. And what I think is the last of the Rocky movies, um, he's about to fight Mason Dixon, and Rocky is like 96 or something, I don't know. But anyway, uh, a little too old to be fighting uh, probably in the ring. His son certainly thinks so because he's kind of down on his dad for doing this. And this is what Rocky says to him. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how you win. It's not how hard you can hit, it's how hard you can get hit and stay on your feet and stay in the ring. Friends, those who endure will be kept from the hour of trial. There is suffering in this world and we will go through it, but at some point we can know that it's not more suffering than we can handle because of Christ and we will be rescued one day. You know, we have seen so much suffering in the news this week from the earthquake in Turkey. The last count that I heard as of this morning, 28,000 confirmed dead, still countless others missing. And while the, the city of Philadelphia, the ancient city in Turkey, was in a different part of Turkey from where this current earthquakes have taken place, that area was very prone to earthquakes. In fact, we know that in AD 17, the city of Philadelphia was destroyed. The emperor Tiberius sent a tremendous amount of money to rebuild the city because it was such an important city on that trade route. The people there understood the fear of devastation. They knew what it was like to experience the ground under their feet literally giving way. And and so Jesus comes along here and he speaks to these people and he says, don't live in fear. Look up, patiently endure. We all know, or we know that all suffering for a Christian is temporary. And so Jesus says, you will be saved from. But he also says, those who hold on will be spared for. Verse 11, I'm coming soon, he says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Does it strike you as interesting that Jesus says, I'm coming soon, and it's already been nearly 2,000 years since he went away? 
Well, in God's economy, 2,000 years is the blink of an eye. I mean, the Bible says to eternal God, a thousand years is like a day. We don't need to get worked up that it's been nearly two millennia already. He's giving more and more people time to repent, I believe, and to come to him. What matters is that we understand that he could come at any time, that we live in a spirit of expectancy. We realize that either he can come back or we're raptured out of the chaos. However it unfolds, we need to make the most of every day because we live expectant that he could come at any time. And I love this idea here that we are promised a crown that no one can take away. A crown suggests royalty and it suggests victory. Sometimes in the first century, crowns were for royalty, for kings and queens, but they also were for Olympic athletes who won their events. They received a crown. One crown is made of gold or silver. Another crown is made of olive branches. But still, the idea of a crown represented both royalty and victory. And friends, if you belong to Jesus, if you've given your life to him, you've been baptized into him, you've surrendered your heart and soul to him, you are part of his royal family, and one day you will overcome, no matter what your life looks like right now. You're on the winning side. But for those who hold on, they're promised even more than a crown. Look what it says in verse 12. The one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on him my new name. When earthquakes came in ancient times, often the only part of a massive building that would be left standing would be the pillars. It's why in many of the videos that we've watched talking about these ancient cities, we have seen ruins where only the pillars are still standing and nothing else remains. Jesus says, those who hold on, those who endure, they will be like pillars in the temple of God. We will literally be a part of this great house of God in a figurative sense. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that Jesus is the cornerstone of the great house of God and that each one of us are stones that are a part of that eternal structure. One small part of something so much greater. Here, the imagery, the metaphor, I think is even more striking. We will be like pillars in the temple. These pillars that were strong, that were enduring, that were beautiful, and that were permanent. And he says, you will be marked with God's name. He, he's going to mark you as one who belongs to him. You'll be marked with the name of his city, the new Jerusalem, to show that we belong right there where he is. And we will be marked with the new name that Jesus will give to each one of us. We talked about that a few weeks ago with the city of Pergamum, that each one who belongs to him receives a special name that is only known to you and to Jesus. The name denotes how special we are. Do you remember that old hymn, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine, and the white-robed angels sing the story, a sinner has come home. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine, with my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, nevermore to roam. That's the promise. That yes, life here sometimes is hard. It can be very hard. Preachers who tell you that if you have enough faith, you won't have any problems. You'll always be healthy and wealthy. You can have whatever you want as long as you believe. They're lying to you. 
Because it, Jesus is very clear in Scripture. In this world, you will have trouble. In we see in Revelation, there will be persecution, there will be opposition, there will be pain and suffering. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. But he also says, for those of you who hold on, for those of you who continue to look up, the suffering is temporary and the glory is eternal. I want to give you a bottom line today, and then I want to wrap up with a story that hopefully kind of paints a picture of what it looks like to endure. The bottom line today is this, we prevail in the present when we focus on the future. We prevail in the present when we focus on the future. Now we can't only think about the future, we can't just talk about heaven and forget about everything happening here. We got a lot of work to do here. We have responsibility here, it's up to us here, right? We're gonna impact this community and our world. We wanna take as many people to heaven with us as we can before we go. But the best way to succeed here, the best way to have a fulfilling life here, the best way to make a difference here is to remember what's coming. We can prevail in the present when we focus on the future, when we look up and remember the promises of God. You know, Gail and I have friends in Indiana, Glenn and Carol Price. They're from England, but they've lived here in the States for quite a long time. Glenn is a marathon runner. He's run them off and on over the years. And when he got into his 60s, he kind of set that goal that some marathon runners have of running a marathon in all 50 states. A marathon is 26.2 miles. I don't know what number he's up to now. I think he's in the 30s or something. But there have been a few times over these past several years where he would go on a trip and he would run three marathons in a week to cover three different states. I mean, the guy's just a machine when it comes to running. Well, his wife, Carol, has run a few marathons herself. And back in 2013, they planned to run a marathon together. It was the first time that a marathon had been run in Columbus, Indiana, where we all lived at the time. And uh, they were going to run it together. Carol said it would be her last marathon. And so she trained for months for this marathon. And then a couple of weeks before the event, she got a stress fracture in her leg and she had to be put in a boot. And after being back and forth at the doctor over that next week, she asked the doctor if she could walk the marathon route in her boot. And he said it would be grueling, but that she would not do any permanent damage to her leg to do that. So that's what she did. She could not run with Glenn, but she planned to speed walk the route instead. Now, at that time, 10 years ago, I could run three miles. I would do some 5K races. And so... I kind of, that was my training limit, was a three-mile run, and I told her that I would walk the marathon with her. So I took a couple of eight to ten-mile walks during that week before the marathon. That was the extent of my marathon training. On the opening morning of the event, everybody took off. It was very, very exciting. Glenn was running with his group of friends. Carol and I started walking, and we were walking fast. I'm telling you, she was a machine out there too. I was the one working hard to keep up with her. We walked five miles. We walked 10 miles. We walked 15 miles. We walked 20 miles. It was brutal. Everybody we passed by saw her in the boot and cheered for her, and they wondered who that dead weight was that she was dragging along behind. And I'm telling you, that was me, okay? That's the guy that was trying to keep up with her. We got to the 24-mile marker, and I asked her if she minded if I ran the last two miles. I wanted to use up every ounce of energy I had uh, at the end. So I kind of jogged and ran those last couple of miles. I thought I was going to die. I'm not kidding. 
I finished the marathon in six hours and 15 minutes. She came in about 10 minutes later. It really was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I was not prepared for what that was going to be like. I got three things for doing the marathon. First, I got blisters. I got lots of blisters. Okay. Besides that, I got a snazzy red t-shirt. Okay. This is my 26.2 mile t-shirt. Uh, very proud of my t-shirt. And I also got a cool medal. All right, let me just give you the full effect here. Um, let's see, here we go. So there we go. All right, I got the T-shirt. I got the medal. This is what I want you to not miss, okay? The T-shirt was easy. The medal was hard. The T-shirt was easy. Anybody who pays the entrance fee and signs up to be in a marathon gets the T-shirt. There were volunteers along the course who got a T-shirt, and they didn't run it at all. They just were helpers. T-shirts are easy. The people who get the medals are the people who go the distance. They're the people who cross the finish line. They're the ones who go 26.2 miles. I like the T-shirt, but I'm proud of the medal because I know what went into getting it. I want you to think about your life with Jesus. It is easy to get started. I mean, it is. You declare your faith in Christ. You repent of your sins. You confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You get baptized. It's easy. He did all the heavy lifting. He did all the work on the cross. All you have to do is accept his free gift of grace. It's like getting a marathon t-shirt. You just sign up. It's easy. But then once you sign up, Jesus wants you to walk with him. And he wants you to run the race with him. And he wants you to go where he leads. And he wants you to do what he says. And all of a sudden, it's not so easy anymore. And sometimes it gets really hard. And there are going to be times when you're going to think it would be easier to quit than to keep going. Like a marathon, there are going to be times when every muscle in your body hurts and you got blisters on your feet. And you're thinking, really, why am I doing this? Is it worth it? You're going to think that way. You're going to feel that way sometimes. But friends, I'm telling you, one of these days, you're going to cross the finish line. Man, you are. And you're going to, you're going to get to that finish line. And there are going to be people who are cheering for you. And there are going to be smiles all around you. And there are going to be people, when you fall across that finish line, who are going to embrace you. And the people who love you most, who've gone on ahead of you, are going to pat you on the back. And they're going to say, way to go. Man, I knew you could do it. And Jesus is going to be at the finish line. And he's going to take in his nail-scarred hands, maybe this medal to hang around your neck or maybe this crown to put on your head, and he's going to embrace you. And he's going to say, way to go. Well done. You've made it home. You have no idea how good it's going to be from here. Friends, hold on. Don't give up. Keep running. In those times when you just feel like throwing in the towel, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Look up, remember the promises, and know all that we have to look forward to in Christ. It is not easy. Anybody who tells you it is is lying to you. But it is worth it. We can prevail in the present when we focus on the future. Let's pray. Father, we love all the promises in Scripture that say that our sins are washed away, we are made new in Christ, that we are forgiven, that someday we're going to be with you forever in eternity in a place where there's no pain and no tears and no sorrow and no death. We love those promises.
But there are other promises. Like in this world, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised if people in the world hate you. The going is going to be hard. There will be persecution. There will be opposition. There will be hard times. And those promises are just as true. And so, God, we we need to remember, especially in those hard times, to look up, to focus on what's ahead, and to remember that your promises are true and that someday we will go across that finish line and all of this will be worth it. God, give us courage. Give us strength, I pray. Help us to stand firm in the hard times. Help us to keep putting one foot in front of the other and help us to trust that someday it will all be worth it. We love you, Lord, and we praise you and thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.